It has been five years since Laudato Si was published, and a lot of people still think of it as that encyclical about recycling or Pope Francis's thing on air conditioning. Pope Francis talks about those things for sure, but there is a lot more going on in Laudato Si. This week on CNA Newsroom, we have stories about the things Pope Francis writes about in Laudato Si. We talk with Archbishop Paul Coakley of Oklahoma City and with other advocates who are working to shut down the pornography industry. And we meet a Catholic entrepreneur who has built a farming business model in Peru, a model that he says is both profitable and promotes local ownership. But first, Pope Francis does have a lot to say in Laudato Si about protection of the environment. We talked with a Catholic biologist about how she is putting Laudato Si into action at her own Atlanta parish, and a Benedictine monastery that went green long before Pope Francis wrote about it. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Stay with us. My name is Susan Varlamov. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I go to St. John Newman Catholic Church. I am a biologist, and I've spent pretty much my entire life protecting the environment. For Susan, the environment's degradation is incredibly personal. Susan got her start in environmental work back home in Minnesota, where she helped to shut down an open, toxic landfill near her neighborhood. After earning her master's degree, Susan moved to Georgia, where she worked for the state as a pollution prevention specialist. Yeah, that's a real job, and it's pretty cool. Then Susan took a job at the University of Georgia as director of the Office of Environmental Sciences. She was working at the university five years ago when Susan heard that the Pope was working on an encyclical about the environment. I was absolutely thrilled. I called a colleague of mine at the University of Georgia who's a geologist, and I said, listen, Rob, uh, this is coming. I wonder if we can do something to help. Susan approached her archbishop, Archbishop Bolton Gregory, to see if she could somehow offer her help to the Pope. Maybe, you know, I could review documents or whatever, uh, sections of the encyclical, and he laughed, and he said, you know, this is an inside job. And they use many well-known scientists for this encyclical. But he said, we need an action plan in Georgia. At Archbishop Gregory's request, Susan quickly put together a team of scientists at the University of Georgia, and then the Vatican published Laudato Si. It was actually much more than we expected. Um, it was obvious Pope Francis had very good input from many scientists. But what I was surprised about the document was it addressed many different environmental issues, from biodiversity, energy, water. Um, and then he talked about the unfair way that the environmental issues are affecting the poor. They're taking a disproportionate share of the the burden of these environmental issues. Susan and her team got to work. Laudato Si published in May. By November, Susan and her team presented a 48-page peer-reviewed action plan to the Archdiocese of Atlanta. The plan suggested 10 areas where Catholics in Atlanta could make changes to make their homes and their parishes more eco-friendly. 
They talked about energy efficiency and recycling and sustainable landscaping and water conservation. Every section included a few concrete suggestions at different levels of time commitment and cost. For example, let's say you wanted to conserve water. You could consider checking your toilet for slow leaks, or if you wanted to do something bigger, you could install a drip irrigation system in your yard. The recommendations are intended to be wide-ranging and to apply to different kinds of circumstances. If your parish is in the city, you're going to be doing different things than if you're out in the country uh, among rural farms. The Archdiocese presented the plan in 2016 on the one-year anniversary of Laudato Si. A copy was sent to every parish. And the Archdiocese conducted energy, water recycling, and waste audits at 12 parishes. Laudato Si was built into the curriculum at some Catholic schools, and creation care teams were started at nearly every parish in the Archdiocese, and even at some schools. But not everyone embraced Susan's action plan. Some parishes said they had too much on their plates already, or they couldn't afford the suggested changes. You know, change comes slowly. Um, And in Georgia, climate change, the whole concept is not accepted by everyone. But I think we can all agree on one thing, that we really want to care better for creation, try not to use excess natural resources. It's been four years since Susan and her team at the University of Georgia developed their Laudato Sea Action Plan. And for those past four years, Susan has been head of the creation care team at her own Atlanta parish. We are trying to be a model, trying different things to see what works, lessons learned, how to engage the parishioners and the church officials. So, um, yes, I've been doing that for four years now. One of the first things that Susan's parish did was to replace styrofoam and disposable dishes at events with actual dishes. So for the breakfast, um, you know, we, we ha- that we have every month, there's a hundred some people, we have, uh, we're washing dishes. And so that reduced the waste by like 50%. That's huge. That's huge. And that was parishioner driven. Her parish did a lot of things. They replaced light bulbs and now they are transforming their campus by planting native plants and trees. That makes a big difference for the environment. We are using mostly native plants, plants that attract pollinators, butterflies, you know, plants that are indigenous to the area. So and we've got a whole team of gardeners that get out there and do that work. So that's another big thing that we're able to do. Susan hopes that more parishes and dioceses will adopt the Laudato Sea Action Plan she helped create. She said she's seen efforts in California and Boston and that change is even happening in Washington, D.C., Archbishop Wilton Gregory's new diocese. Well, it's exciting because, you know, for so many years, I sort of was out front as far as the environment, doing so much in my own home. But to actually see the Catholic Church embrace this, and the Pope, who's a trained chemist, come out with an environmental encyclical, was absolutely thrilling. Why shouldn't Catholic churches be demonstration sites for energy efficiency, water efficiency, growing food sustainably. You know, why not recycling? There's no reason why the Catholic Church can't lead the way. A Catholic approach to environmental sustainability, like the one Pope Francis writes about in Laudato Si, is not exactly new. In fact, sustainability has been a part of Catholic monasteries for centuries. St. Benedict of Norcia was writing about that stuff as early as the 6th century. If you go to the rule of St. Benedict, particularly chapter 31, there's a line there where Benedict talks about 
the proper use of tools and the property. You're to use them sort of like the sacred vessels of the altar. That being said, Benedict saw the connection between the land and also spiritual growth. This is Brother Christosom. He's a monk at the Monastery of Christ in the Desert in New Mexico. We are probably, arguably, uh, one of the most remote monasteries in the world, if not the most remote monastery of the world. Christ in the Desert is nestled deep in the Chama River Canyon, about two hours' drive north of Santa Fe. The monastery sits on more than 250 acres of land, and it's incredibly striking. Brother Christosom still remembers the first time he visited the monastery, back in 2014. When I drove the 13-mile road, a dirt winding road with no guardrails and everything, over hills and sloping mountainsides and everything, and finally reached the monastery, I was just dumbfounded. Just seeing the monastery, the grounds, the adobe buildings, Our adobe structure, our chapel, is arguably the largest adobe structure in the world, tallest adobe structure in the world because of the the bell tower. It's dramatic. It really is dramatic. It's not built up. It's just nature showing its beauty. Back then, Brother Christensen was making annual retreats at monasteries, but he had no intention of actually becoming a monk. Christ in the desert changed that. I think this place and its setting had a lot to do with me actually being able to hear and respond to God's calling. Christ in the desert's adobe construction isn't just for looks. The adobe is naturally sourced from the Chama Canyon that surrounds the monastery grounds, and many of the buildings are insulated with straw bales. That natural building method is one part of the monastery's sustainability efforts that have been in place since its founding in 1964. Waves of monks who have lived here and worked the land, they brought different types of plans and, and sort of strategies uh, to best use the land. We've had goats here before. We've uh, grown hops for beer production, and we have a brewery on our monastery. The monks couldn't maintain their brewing business, but they still grow hops, and more recently, they've been starting greenhouses. We have vegetable gardens, and We are also looking to incorporate bees into our agricultural plan because there's a whole cottage industry that could come out of honey production and honey harvesting. Brother Christosom was actually put in charge of the community's venture into beekeeping. Please pray for me. I hope I'm not allergic. I don't think I am, but I hope I'm not. Christ in the Desert already has an entirely self-sufficient water system. We take our water directly from the Shama River and we uh, filter it and uh, prepare it, and, and then it, it's pumped up into towers, water towers, so that we will have um, water for our cooking, bathing, and, and washing needs. The monastery also has a small solar farm. It lets them capitalize on one natural resource they have a lot of, sunshine. But like most solar schemes, um, uh, having worked at a, um, having taught at a college before, um, solar energy comprises a small percentage of your overall energy needs and energy capacity. 
Um, at this time, our solar panels provide a very small percentage of our electricity needs. Um, sadly, we still rely heavily on uh, a diesel engine, a generator, which during the night when the solar panels can't be used, generates energy for us so that we can have hot showers, um, we can have um, electricity for ourselves and guests, because we are off the grid. We are not connected to a power line. The greenhouses are Christ in the Desert's latest sustainability initiative. Right now, we get our food from town. Um, uh, we go to Walmart, Sam's Club, and other places. But we are trying to reduce that over time so that we can um, reduce our carbon footprint and also um, take advantage of the beautiful land that God has given us in our cloister. The monks don't expect their agricultural plan to really get off the ground for another few years. We're just at the very start. But I can tell you right now, having been here, when there was no agricultural plan, the place looks completely different. It looks like a little Xanadu in the middle of the desert. At Christ in the Desert, the monks mostly support themselves through hospitality. They have a guest house and a few hermitages where people can come and visit. Guests are invited to join the monks to pray the Liturgy of the Hours and even to help in the greenhouse. They can work with us in the greenhouse. They can work with us with the sheep. They can work with us with bees if they don't get stung. And the monks figure maybe guests will be inspired to start their own gardens or to practice sustainability at home. We would hope that that would be a, a residual or a byproduct to our work because basically... That is our life as monks, basically us in chapel, in, in, in prayer, in silence and everything, is something they too can take back to their homes, their communities, their organizations. So everything we do hopefully can be modeled, and hopefully everything we do is for God's glory. So there are many things that people can take from, from being with us, hopefully very good things, that they can incorporate into their daily living. We'll be right back. This is Bishop James Wall from the Diocese of Gallup. You listen to the CNA Newsroom or CNA Editor's Desk regularly, or both? I do. I listen to it on the iPhone app. You can listen here or on any podcast platform. Just search for CNA Newsroom and hit subscribe. Each new episode will be delivered straight to your phone. Now back to the show. Denison has spent the majority of his career working and thriving in Silicon Valley. He's still there today. But about 10 years ago, John went on a mission trip, and that trip shifted his perspective on business. He began to ask himself, what if he could do something that would still generate profit for investors, but would also help make the world a better place? 
The mission trip was John and his wife's idea. They thought it could give their daughters a little perspective. My wife and I began to worry about how our two daughters, then 14 and 12 years old, could possibly grow up with a healthy perspective on their roles in the world growing up amidst the wealth in Silicon Valley that can have a distorting effect on young people growing up. So we took them on a mission trip uh, that summer to the desert of northern Peru for the purpose of transforming their lives and unexpectedly, it transformed mine. Within hours of landing in Peru, John and his family were helping a smallholder farmer harvest his cotton crop. In talking with the farmer and others like him, John saw the agricultural yield gap firsthand. And the yield gap is the astonishing difference in bushels per acre when comparing a developed and an emerging country farm. That difference can be factor three factor five, sometimes greater. In other words, if an emerging country farm yields one bushel per acre, in the developed country, there may may be three or five bushels yielded. From John's experience in Peru, the agricultural impact company SharedX was born. Real quick, an impact company in simple terms is one that combines the financial motivation of a for-profit company with the heart of a nonprofit. Okay, back to John. So, in one sentence, SharedX's business plan is to collapse the yield gap. For profit, yes, but also for two, I'll call them redemptive purposes to lift smallholder farmer incomes and to deploy regenerative, responsible farming methods that are good for the soil the water, the workers, and the consumers. Here's how it works. John's company buys mid-sized farms from wealthy families in cities or mid-tier farmers looking to get out of the business. Those farms serve a dual purpose. Cash flow for SharedX, our for-profit company, and a classroom for the community where we teach them responsible farming methods that improve their yields. We also help them with access to market getting better prices. The results for many smallholder farmers have been uh, substantial. And the reason is because the yield gap. So price premiums by themselves can't produce the income gain for smallholder farmers that yields can because you can increase yields two or three or sometimes five times, but you can't increase prices two or three or five times. The crops Shared X grows today include specialty coffee, artisan chocolate, and organic fruits, including pineapples and bananas. They have farms in Peru, the Dominican Republic, and Zambia. Uh, and we, we want to expand further in Latin America and in Africa over time. SharedX is still a fairly new company. John co-founded it in July of 2015, just weeks after the publication of Laudato Si. John said the encyclical was a major inspiration for him, particularly the Pope's words about integral ecology. In integral ecology, that's central to Laudato Si. What does that mean? It means that Christian spirituality 
can be a path to conversion. And he calls it ecological conversion, but it's that's not the environment, it's the environment, but it's more. There's a quote from Pope Benedict in Laudato Si that gets to the heart of it, integral ecology. Pope Benedict said, the external deserts in the world are growing because the internal deserts have become so vast. So the idea is through a revolution of heart for all of us, including me, that is the best foundation to set for addressing the world's biggest problems, the people and the planet. Pope Francis also talks about smallholder farmers several times throughout the encyclical. Yeah, including a section where he says agriculture in poorer regions can be improved through investment in rural infrastructure, a better organization of markets, irrigation, and the development of techniques of sustainable agriculture. In our own small way, uh, we have innovations in all of those. John's experience in Peru shifted his perspective on business and inspired him to launch an impact company. And he says he's not alone. More and more companies in Silicon Valley are becoming impact-oriented. Adam Smith, who's the famous economist from 250 years ago, wrote The Wealth of Nations, which every economics major, a major in economics, so I had to read that. Uh, but he, he, he was also a moral philosopher. He was really the world's first great economist, but, but actually, most of his career, he was a moral philosopher, and he wrote a book. 260 years ago, called A Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in it, he writes about happiness and said the best path to it is to unite our best mind with our best heart. And so I think what what I'm seeing in the impact economy is that there's another form of return, financial return for investors, societal return for society, but for the impact pioneers themselves, another form of return frequently materializes, which is a depth of personal fulfillment, not available at a conventional company, because they are using the heart of a nonprofit every single day in everything they do. In other words, just the sort of happiness Adam Smith taught and the sort of integral ecology Pope Francis preaches about. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. If you're someone who has actually read Laudato Si, You know that one theme Pope Francis develops in the encyclical is the idea of a throwaway culture. The idea that all too often we use things for our own purposes, and then we just discard them. And obviously this applies to the things we buy, but it also applies to people. Pope Francis says that we cannot have a sense of deep communion with the rest of nature if our hearts lack tenderness, compassion, and concern for our fellow human beings. And later he writes... The culture of relativism is the same disorder which drives one person to take advantage of another, to treat others as mere objects. The throwaway culture of human beings is expressed in a lot of ways, but one of the most ubiquitous ways all around the world 
is the culture of pornography and human trafficking. A quick warning for this next segment. Although it doesn't contain descriptions of pornography or sexual assault, it does deal with those topics. So please be aware of that if you have kids listening. Here's CNA producer Jonah McKeown. Rose grew up in a small town in Ohio. At age 14, it wasn't uncommon for her to take walks in the evening by herself. But one evening in 2009 was different. As Rose was walking, a man she had seen around town confronted her and abducted her at knife point. Over the next 12 hours, her kidnapper and another man raped her. They later dumped her by the side of the road, bloodied and traumatized, but alive. She got help, and although the experience had been unbearably horrific, she thought, at least, that it was over. That is, until a few months later, when some of Rose's classmates began passing around videos linking to a porn website. Videos of Rose's assault. The videos had lurid titles that referenced the fact that Rose was a teenager. The videos had already racked up hundreds of thousands of views. Rose pleaded for months with the site, Pornhub, via email to take down the videos, and got no response. Then she had an idea. She created a fake email account pretending to be a lawyer threatening legal action if the videos weren't taken down. Within 48 hours, she says, the videos disappeared. Rose shared her story in a blog post last year. In response, dozens of women, and some men, responded saying Pornhub had also hosted videos of them being sexually assaulted. Rose's story is just one of many listed on an online petition calling for Pornhub to be shut down. It was created a few months ago by the anti-sex trafficking organization Exodus Cry. The petition already has nearly a million signatures. Out of all the promoters of internet pornography, none is more ubiquitous nor more powerful than Pornhub. Its parent company, MindGeek, essentially has a monopoly on the online porn industry, as it owns several of the world's biggest sites. Pornhub alone was the subject of nearly 40 billion internet searches last year, with more than 80,000 visits per minute. Pornhub, and many of the sites like it, often defend themselves by describing themselves as entertainment, by saying that most of what goes on on the site is consensual and provides a livelihood for those who appear in the videos. But researchers and advocates have strongly disputed the idea that pornography is a profession of choice for the women involved. Most people think pornography is something miles apart from prostitution, and it isn't. This is Dr. Melissa Farley, a researcher who studies and advocates for an end to the sex trade. The reason they're in it in the first place is because they're on the margins of survival and they're doing it for the money. They're not doing it for the fun or the glamour or their careers. They're doing it because they have a medical bill to pay, the rent to pay, 
where they need to feed their kids. This also extends to what Farley calls filmed prostitution. Really, the only difference between pornography and prostitution, the only difference is there's a camera in the room in one case and there isn't in the other. Many women get involved in prostitution out of desperation, she said, thinking it'll be a one-time thing and that they'll soon leave it behind them. Thinking that they're going to get out fast, they're going to make a bunch of money, and then they're gone, and that phase of their life is behind them. You can do that if you're not filmed. If you're filmed, what happens is there's an infinite image of you at your most degrading, humiliated moment in your life. When we interviewed more than 850 people in the sex trade, we found that about half of them had been filmed. The ones who had filmed prostitution, the ones who had porn made of them, they had a more a serious amount and a higher amount of PTSD survivors of prostitution and porn have explained to us. It's because of the knowledge that their film is out there circulating on the web and someday, somewhere, it could come back and bite them in a really horrible way. Of course, many women depicted on Pornhub like Rose, haven't consented at all. Last year, a series of videos depicting the sexual abuse and rape of a 15-year-old girl began appearing on Pornhub. She had been missing for over a year, and her mother, who had been desperately searching for her, found the videos online. And there weren't just a handful of videos of her daughter on the site. There were over 50. Although her captor has since been arrested, Pornhub itself has not yet faced any repercussions. Although pornography, of course, is nothing new, the coronavirus pandemic has thrown the issue into even sharper relief. As countries like Italy, Spain, and France began to go on lockdown in the first months of 2020, Pornhub began offering free access to their premium content to the entire countries, leading to a predictable spike in traffic. So, what can we make of all this from a perspective of faith? Pope Francis isn't the first pope to decry the culture of sexual exploitation, but he does talk about it in his encyclical Laudato Si, which may be surprising to some people. It is about far more than what most people think of immediately when they, when they hear the title Laudato Si. It's about climate change or recycling or... This is Archbishop Paul Coakley of Oklahoma City. He chairs the U.S. Bishops' Committee on Domestic Justice and Human Development. One of the themes that the Holy Father has developed repeatedly and in ever-deepening ways over the years is his whole notion of a throwaway culture, which can be linked, I suppose, with kind of the radical consumerism that is so characteristic of Western culture in particular. We find our worth in what we can consume, and when we're finished with it, we discard it. The truth is, in a culture that accepts pornography, it's not just things that get used and thrown away. One of the things that the Holy Father says repeatedly in Laudato Si is that everything is interrelated. Everything is connected. And so it's not a very difficult leap to imagine how this kind of consumer mentality 
this throwaway culture can affect the way we treat one another. People are being used. People, people are being instrumentalized for selfish pleasures. Uh, people are being exploited, used, abused, and, and discarded, thrown away like so much trash. And by the way, this isn't just Archbishop Coakley's observation. Dr. Farley says, as a researcher studying prostitution and pornography, this disposable people attitude is very, very real. The best I've learned on that disposability issue is when I've done interviews with men who buy sex, and they straight out tell you prostitution is like buying a cup of coffee. When you're finished with it, you throw it out. That's pretty disposable. As a priest and a bishop, Coakley has seen firsthand how the use of pornography can negatively affect marriages, families, and spiritual lives. It drives a wedge very often in, in human relationships. And, and it's usually men, but not exclusively, become so desensitized by pornography that they lose their ability to enter into real relationships, to really encounter another person, to experience authentic, deep human intimacy lose the, the, the capacity for intimate relationships and communications because everything is mediated by a, by a screen and by, by their fantasies rather than by real human encounters. Of course, despite the proliferation of illegal content such as rape and child pornography, much of the content on porn websites is, unfortunately, legal. It's corrosive of, of society, it's corrosive of relationships, it's corrosive of, of families, whether it's legal or illegal, and it renders people less human. So I, I think the, there are so many ways in which we, anybody who really takes the time to reflect upon what pornography is, what pornography does, sees that it is a scourge uh, in society. It's not an innocent form of entertainment. Uh, somebody is being victimized. And the consumers of pornography are, are, are enabling that behavior. Archbishop Coakley stressed that for those addicted to pornography, it really is an addiction and should be treated as such. What we're dealing with here is an addiction. Uh, this is not just a, a sin. Uh, this is an addictive process. It uh, grabs hold of people and won't let go. There need to be effective interventions to, to break that cycle, specifically because I think as people are drawn into pornography, it begins in maybe more natural forms, but it becomes more and more unnatural and brutal and inhuman. Of course, this isn't a topic that's easy to talk about, for parents or pastors or anyone, really. In his archdiocese, they're taking steps to try and change that. We produced uh, little cards to go into confessionals uh, that priests can discreetly distribute uh, to those who are struggling with pornography. For most men, I think to develop a good rapport with and relationship with and appreciation of the role of the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph. Uh, beautiful models of, of chastity and chaste living, uh, the prayer of the rosary, consult in the, in the confessional, uh, their, their confessor. Uh, people will be led, I think, if they ask for help. In terms of legal repercussions, Pornhub has so far remained largely immune. That's something a lot of advocates, 
including several U.S. lawmakers, want to see changed. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska is one such lawmaker. He wrote to the Department of Justice in March asking for a federal investigation into Pornhub and its parent company, MindGeek. I think we have the, the, the tools available to us in terms of uh, uh, obscenity laws and such, but they need to be uh, rigorously enforced and they need to be investigated when there are suspected violations of those laws uh, by the, the producers and the, those who trade in human misery. Because this is not a victimless crime. People's lives are being destroyed. So I think we need to have our eyes opened and our hearts touched by the, the suffering that pornography is causing. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks to all our guests on this week's episode. We will, Lidauto, see you next week.